This morning's scripture reading is from Romans 5, 1 through 11. can be found in your pew Bible on pages 942. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And that is our sermon text today. So if you didn't open up to Romans 5, Go ahead and do it now. Again, page 942 if you're using the Black Bible on the seat back in front of you. And while you're, uh, sounds like you're all there. I don't hear pages turning. That's good. Let me, uh, let's pray. Let's ask God to speak to us. Father, we do thank you for the book that we have in front of us. It is your word. It's, it's what you have given to us to reveal yourself to us. So Lord, we, we come and not not taking this lightly, not taking this for granted, Father, but, but thankful that you have spoken to us. And that, Father, that you say that these words are, are more than just mere words, they're power, they're life, they pierce us, they change us. And this morning, Father, that we need all of that. So we just ask you by your Spirit's work, God, to work in us, to encourage us, to challenge us, convict us, grow us. Most importantly, point us to Jesus this morning, the source of salvation and life. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right. Well, you know, we're doing a series through the book of Romans, and we've been in it for quite a while now. And one of the things, if, if you recall, that I talked about early on in the sermon series was that Romans is a letter that's both rich in theology and in Christian doctrine, and also immensely practical for daily Christian living. I said that, that Paul's motive for writing this letter to the church in Rome, again, who he had not yet met, uh, but his motive in writing this letter to them was his love for God and his love for people. That's what he expresses right away in chapter, chapter 1. I, that, he, that he loves the Lord for all that God has done, and, and, he, and he loves people, and he can't wait to just come and, and tell them more proclaim more about the Gospel of Jesus Christ because everybody needs it. And we said this early as we were talking about chapter 1. We said, you know, you can't love people without theology. That, that again, Paul being motivated by, by his love for God and his love for people, he wrote a very rich book, a very doctrinally heavy book, and because he, he knows that those two things go together. 
If you, if you love people, you've got to give them the truth and the fullness of all that's true about who God is and about who Christ is and what the Gospel is. You can't love people without theology. And at the same time, you can't teach theology without that mindset of, of loving people as you point them to a loving God. They, they, they go hand in hand. Love and theology. Theology should be guided by love. So these last few weeks that we've been here and going through chapters 3 and chapters 4, those have been chapters that have been full of that theology, right? Full of that, that rich doctrine. And we've been talking particularly at length about this particular doctrine, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's where we've been over the last several weeks. And today, we're going to see how Paul applies that awesome doctrine to people in an exciting and encouraging and loving way. Alright? So I'm really excited about this. You know, the last few weeks, I love studying the Bible and I love preaching. Every week when I do this, I get the opportunity throughout the week to spend time in the Word. It's always satisfying. It's always encouraging to me. But I, I just want to say, this week's been maybe more so. Because over the last few weeks, going through all that doctrine, I've been having to think about how does this apply to people, coming up with that application. And, and this week, in chapter 5 now, Paul does that for us. So I've just been able to soak in listening to Paul apply all this rich doctrine, and it's been so good for me this week, and I'm, I'm encouraged that it's going to be really good for you, for all of us this week. So this, it's, a, it's an exciting sermon. You came on a good day, alright? Um, before we do that, though, let's remind ourselves what justification by faith means. Again, we spent several weeks talking about this concept. What is justification by faith? It means this. It means that our salvation is a gift. Right? In a nutshell. It's not something that we've earned by our good intentions or our good behavior. It's not something that's sustained by our own strength or our own will. It is simply God's grace and God's mercy applied to sinful people like you and me through the death and the resurrection of His own perfect Son. And Jesus does that. He comes and He dies for us in order to satisfy God's righteous wrath against our sins so that we might be redeemed. So that we might be forgiven and adopted as heirs. Again, not because of anything that we earned or are worthy of, but solely because Jesus' position as God's heir is and can be imputed to us by faith. So justification by faith, is, is, it's a gift. It's God's gracious work for undeserving people like you and me. It's all, all that He has to give to His own Son, He gives to us by faith. And we trust in, in Jesus to be uh, what we couldn't be and to do what we couldn't do. That is, that is awesome doctrine. All right, And again, if you missed any of those last few weeks and you want more, go back and listen because there's plenty there to unpack. But, let's talk again about now what? What do you do with that doctrine? How does this affect your daily life as a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, now we come to chapter 5 and this is what Paul shows us. He shows us, in fact, in this beginning of this chapter, seven ways Seven ways that this amazing doctrine of justification by faith in Christ affects our daily lives as believers. All right? So the title this morning is Seven Realities of the Justified Life. 
And here's the first of the seven ways that because we've been justified by faith in Jesus, this, this is the first, first of the seven things that we have. Number one, we have peace with God. Because you've been justified by faith in Jesus, you have peace with God. And, and the way that we might say what peace means is it is the, the removal of negative hostility. God's hostility towards you has been removed. Again, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to start by talking about what this peace is not. All right? What this peace is not, it's not saying that we have the peace of God. Uh, you might be familiar with Philippians chapter 4, where it talks about that, that, that God will give us his peace, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's the peace of God. And, and that's a different kind of peace than what Paul's talking about here, because that kind of peace is, is sort of subjective. In other words, you may or may not always feel that kind of peace. When, when we're anxious, we're told to let our prayer requests and our supplications be made known to him, and, and he'll transform us from being anxious to having peace. It's something we sometimes can have and sometimes we may not have. This is not like that. That's the peace of God. He says, no, this is peace with God. This is not subjective peace. This is objective peace. Peace with God means that you are no longer at war with God. Or maybe better to say it, God is no longer at war with you. And again, if you haven't been here for the discussion of Romans, that might sound like really hard language. What are you talking about? God's at war with me. Well, this again goes back to what Paul was talking about in chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by that ungodliness have suppressed the truth. Right? We have made ourselves, because of sin, enemies of God, and therefore His righteous wrath falls on us. God is at war with the sinner. Until, by faith, we trust in Jesus' work, his finished work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. And at that point, Paul then says, you are no longer in that state, but now you are at peace with God. Your, you know, you, the way that works is that you, in our sin, we basically set ourselves up as kings, right? We set ourselves up as our own kings and our own queens. We, we want to live our lives for ourselves. We want to sort of take territory for ourselves. But but what Romans 1 was saying is every time we try to do that, we're trying to take territory that belongs to a rightful king. God's the rightful king of everything, including our own hearts. And when two kings butt up against each other and fight over the same territory, then that's war, right? War ensues. But he's saying this is, this is now a change in that status. When you come to faith in Christ, that war is over. It's over. And here's the beautiful thing about the way that that war is ended. He says that, that we're at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Which is to say this, it's because of who Jesus is and what He has done that that war is now over. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. Which is to say this, and this is really important, I want you to get this. The peace that we have with God is not a brokered peace. Right? Brokered peace is when, when two sides come together and they come to a mutual agreement and they decide to call a truce. 
That's not the kind of peace that we have. There's another kind of peace that comes in war. It's the kind of peace that comes when one side conquers the other, when the good side hopefully conquers the bad, and that conquering brings about a new reign of peace. That's the kind of peace that we have. The peace that we have with God through Jesus is a, is a peace that comes through conquering. The, the sin and the death that has separated us has been defeated through Jesus. And therefore, by His conquering, there's peace. That's a beautiful and remarkable truth. And let me tell you what this means for you. It means this. And listen to this. You may, this may be exactly what you need to hear this morning. It means that guilt and shame, the guilt and the shame that, that you may be experiencing because of the conflict that you felt between you and God because of your sin, that has no claim over you anymore. None. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, He's saying Jesus has conquered sin. He has brought about peace. God is no longer angry with you. So you may, at times, feel like I'm afraid of God. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, you should feel that way. But if you are a Christian, you, you may at times feel like I'm afraid of God because I've, I, feel, I feel the weight of sin still in my life. There's sin in my past that although I, I believe in my head that He nailed it to the cross and He's forgiven it, it still comes back to haunt me and makes me feel dirty and guilty and shameful. And it makes, makes me doubt whether or not God really has loved me or really could love me or really could forgive me. I, I don't know. I've done so much. And Paul's saying, no, if, you, if you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, a reality in your life is that that guilt and shame has no claim over you at all. There is peace between you and God. And that's a reality. That's a reality for all who are in Christ Jesus. That's beautiful truth. So firstly, the first reality of the justified life is that we have, have peace with God. Secondly, we have access to His grace. Which is to say, this takes the peace of God one step further. Not only has the negative hostility been removed, but there's been this addition of positive relationship with God placed onto us. Access to His grace. Verse 2. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access to the throne of grace and we stay there, Paul says. So not only do you have the peace with God, the hostility has been removed, but, but there's, this, there's this sense in which as Jesus has conquered that for you, He's also invited you into presence with God. Into the throne room of grace, if you will. It's an access that you would not and could not have had otherwise without an invitation. But Jesus has invited you into that place. And Paul says not, it's not just a place that you come into sometimes, 
You know, like when, when, I, when I sin or when I feel like I, I need that grace, I can, I can step into that place, but then eventually I'm going to have to go back out and I hope, I'm, I hope I do okay enough out here. If I don't, I get to go back in and, and get that grace again that I need. Paul says it's not like that. It's a, it's a place that you come into and you stay there always. The way I think about it is, is uh, you know, elsewhere the Bible talks about what it looks like to be clothed in righteousness. And I think that's what, the, what he's talking about here. When we're invited into, we have access to the grace of God, we are covered by grace always as believers. As you live your life, and as you seek to follow Jesus, and as you, as you sometimes fail to do that, as, as sin creeps into your life, it never derails you. It never puts you back in a position of God being at war with you. It never puts you in a position of being outside of the grace of God. We are always and forever covered by God's grace. We are clothed in that righteousness. We, everywhere we go, we carry it with us at all times. Never outside of the presence of God's grace. That is, again, positional security that we have in Jesus Christ because you've, excuse me, you've been justified by faith in what He did. If we were justified by faith in what you did, your own efforts, your own work, your own righteousness, it'd be something you'd step in and out of all the time because you sin. But you're justified by faith in what He did, which was perfect, which was once and for all, and you can never step outside of it because it's unfailing. It's perfect grace. So Paul says you've stepped out of hostility, but you've stepped into the presence of the access to His grace. That grace covers us constantly. And therefore, thirdly, we have the hope of His glory. The last half of verse 2. I'll read the first half again. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. This is hope that comes as a result of the peace and the access that we have. Alright? In other words, what Paul I think is getting at is when you experience peace with God, that hostility has been removed, and you step into the constant state of being covered by His grace, what that does for you is it builds in you a, a, it sort of stokes in you a greater desire for more of His presence. You're, it, 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 I think what he's saying here is it, it builds in us a longing for ultimately heaven. Because we know as we've tasted and seen the goodness of God, He's removed His hostility and clothed me with righteousness. God is good. All the time, right? God is He's amazingly good. To walk in this grace is, is amazingly freeing to me and I want more of that. I, I hope for more of that. More of His glory. And Paul's saying, this is what you get when you're justified by faith in Christ. That hope grows. And here's the thing about hope. Hope, in biblical terms, is not like the kind of hope that we often talk about in 21st century America. Hope for us seems like a wishful thinking kind of thing. I hope I get that. I hope that happens. But that's not the kind of hope he's talking about. He's talking about the hope of certainty. It is a hope-filled certainty 
I am getting heaven. I am getting glory. I know that that's true. And I know that it will only come in greater measure to me as I continue to follow Him. And He continues to make me holy. And eventually, He takes me home. And I want more. I want more. You know, one of the saddest things that, uh, that I think I've ever heard was a, several years ago, my grandfather passed away. And I went out to the funeral. And uh, I was sitting around with a family member of mine. And we were talking about uh, death. We were talking about afterlife. It, my grandfather was, was a religious man. Um, my family, a religious family. But I, I, don't, I don't think, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think that they're, they're actually born again. I don't think they're really saved. Deeply religious though. And, and one family member said to me as we were talking about death, uh, she said, you know, um, I hope, I hope I've, I've done enough to get to heaven. You know, I hope grandpa's there. And I hope, I hope, I, how can I know though? This is what she was saying. How can we know? I can, I can only hope I've done enough. And I remember just thinking, ah, oh, I don't have that, I don't have the kind of hope you have. I know I'm going to be there. Not because I've done enough. Because I know what Jesus has done for me. And I'm certain that my sin is paid for. I'm certain of the hope of glory that I have. And that's what Paul's saying. This is the kind of hope that we have. It's not wishful thinking. You're certain of it. Because, again, you know you've been justified by faith in what Jesus did. Not what you did. If Jesus accomplished it, I have nothing to lose because Jesus accomplished it fully. That's hope. So here we go. Paul's saying, look, you, you want to know what the benefit of justification by faith in Jesus Christ is? Here it is. You, you have peace with God. You have access to His grace. You have certain hope of glory. You're going to heaven. And at this point, you might say, gosh, Paul, this is good. But it sounds, to be honest with you, Paul, it sounds so ethereal and idealistic. I mean, I want to walk around in life with that kind of positive outlook all the time and that kind of, wow, look at what I have in Christ. But the reality is, Paul, life is hard. That might be your response as I'm preaching so far already. That sounds really good, but life's hard. I don't always... I don't always walk around with that confidence. Yeah, you know what? And Paul recognizes this and he offers perspective. He says, you know, this is, this is good. But you can be confident in all of life. Not just when you're believing all of that and things seem to be so powerfully good, but in all of life because the Gospel also brings us, fourthly, joy and suffering. Joy and suffering. Verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This is one of the most beautiful promises of the Gospel. And you know what? Unfortunately, it's one of the most neglected in daily Christian living and experience. Joy in sufferings. I wouldn't be surprised if even the mention of joy in the midst of sufferings is for some of us this morning exasperating. 
because you know that the Bible talks about it, but you think, but I rarely experience it. Do you ever feel that way? I know I do sometimes. But here's what Paul's saying to us. He's saying it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be exasperating to, for me to say that and for you to believe it. Here's why. Because the reality of our justification by faith in Jesus really does give us powerful ammunition. Powerful ammunition and hope to combat the downward spiral of discouragement that comes when we experience suffering. Let's be, let's be clear about what suffering is. All right? This will help us to sort of see how what Paul is saying is so true. Here's what suffering is. Suffering is directly related to the brokenness of sin. Alright? Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that, that all suffering is a direct result of your personal sin. Alright? That wouldn't be true. But, all suffering exists because sin has corrupted creation. Right? It's corrupted creation. It's, it's exposed us to disease, to decay, to pain, to relational strife. I mean, you could go down the list of all the things that cause suffering, even to ultimately death, right? Suffering exists because sin has corrupted. So, suffering comes because of one of two things, all right? You suffer either because, number one, that brokenness is consuming you. It just, it just, the, the weight of all that just crushes you sometimes and you can't bear under it and you, you, you suffer. Or, two, as Christians, suffering can come as, as holiness, the holiness that's being formed in us by God's grace as we follow Christ, as we're, as we're made more into His image. That holiness that's being formed in us sometimes pushes against, always pushes against, the brokenness of our own flesh or the world around us and, and it causes friction, right? And so we're told that we suffer as believers sometimes because our, that holiness being formed in us, is, it's refining us. It's pushing against sin and brokenness. It's, it's sort of like swimming upstream against a tremendous current. So for the first kind of suffering, here's what the Gospel says. And again, by Gospel, I'm saying the reality of our justification in Jesus. If you feel like I'm suffering because the weight of all that brokenness is just crushing me, it's consuming me, the Gospel tells us that the brokenness of this world has not, cannot, and will not consume you. Has not, cannot, and will not consume you. The point of Jesus' suffering on our behalf was that the suffering, the brokenness, was to consume Him so that it would not consume you. And His resurrection loudly proclaims that suffering and death will not have the final word in the lives of those who've trusted by faith in Jesus. Do you hear that this morning? It won't consume you. It can't consume you because it consumed Jesus for you. He consumed it or was consumed by it for you. And His resurrection proclaims to you that He has victory over it. Though we suffer, we never suffer 
without hope. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10. through In other words, it's this. It is regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your circumstances, Christians are positionally already, right now, currently, more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. That's who you are, Christian. Right now. More than conquerors. Nothing can rob you of that. Nothing. It's a truth to be believed. And and when we believe it, then all suffering as Christians falls into that second category, which is to say again, the suffering that we experience as as the holiness that's being formed in us is pushing against the brokenness of our own flesh or the world and therefore causing friction. You're you're not suffering because you're being consumed. Jesus already took care of that. You might be suffering though because that, 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 that tension in you, the holiness, is pushing against the reality that sin and pain and all that stuff still exists. But here's what the Gospel says to that. Again, by Gospel, I mean the reality of our justification in Jesus. It tells us that this kind of suffering is for our identification with Jesus and for our purification and refinement as His followers. In other words, our sufferings remind us that that we are in fact identified with Jesus. That we are in Him indeed. That's an evidence that I know I am in Jesus is when I do face the kind of suffering that's friction against my my developing holiness pushing against the sinful broken world. That's actually good news. It means there's a struggle going on. Jesus is working in me, right? That we're in fact living lives that conflict with brokenness. And this, this, Paul says, that's meant to encourage you and to grow you, which is why he talks about what he says here at the end of verse 4, suffering then produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when, when you suffer like that, it builds something in you that goes back to where he started with. It builds in you the confidence that you have peace with God. It builds in you the confidence that you have access to His grace. It builds in you the confidence that you have the hope of glory. You endure in those things, and the more you endure in those things, the more you long for and believe and cherish the realities of who you are and what you have in Jesus, which produces character. And character is another way of saying, basically, it's testedness. The more you experience God's faithful presence in security and assurance in your life as you go through those things, the more it builds the confidence that indeed, you're with God. That He's indeed with you. And that's why he says this character produces hope. Again, it's all about building confidence in who God is and who you are in God because of Jesus. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In other words, he's saying the more, the more we suffer in that kind of way, identifying with Christ and believing that, that it's because we're, we're pushing against the brokenness of this world, the more it, it actually builds in us a steadfastness to be holy. And a confidence that we are holy. Because of Jesus. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Same kind of language there. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's what Peter's saying. Joy, not a feeling. It's deeper than that. Joy is not a feeling. It, it's, it's, it's deeper than that. Uh, happiness is a feeling. Joy is deeper. It's, it's the settled and unwavering conviction that a very good God is always in control and that His goodness is for you because you've been justified by faith in His Son. That's what joy is. It's a belief. you can indeed rejoice in your sufferings. Now, you say, well, does that mean that there aren't any ways to have sort of subjective internal experiences of God's love? Is it, is it always, i, I got to believe it without ever really experiencing or feeling it? I like feeling stuff. Well, no, Paul actually says there's, there's a little bit of both. So not only do we have this uh, this joy in the midst of trials. But, but number five, he says, we also have real assurance. Real assurance. Look at verse five. He says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. These verses actually show us two ways that the Gospel, again, the reality of our justification by faith in Jesus, two ways that it assures us. One is internal and subjectively experienced, and the other is external and objectively applied. Alright? So again, there's a balance to this, Paul's saying. The first, internal assurance, is found in verse 5, which again talks about this deposit that we have. God has poured His love into us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We experience, he says, the assuring love of God because He's poured it into us in the form of His presence. We have the deposit of God's own Spirit indwelling us. That's a, that's a crazy amazing thing. Right? Your justification by faith in, in God through what He's done in Jesus is not just something that you believe positionally, but you actually experience a new reality, a change, because He's he's poured His Spirit into you. You're different. God is with you, not just positionally, but physically. Spiritually. He indwells us. And the Spirit's presence is sometimes experienced in powerful and tangible ways. Jesus told His disciples that He would send to them a helper, right, a, a comforter. His own presence to come alongside them. To point them to the Father. To, 
to teach them. Paul later says in this letter that the Spirit actually prays for us, moans for us in our distress with words that are too deep for us to utter. If you look at, if you look at Acts chapter 13, actually verse 52, it says that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with joy. Like there's, those things go together. That, that, that real experience of joy comes from the real filling of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. Have you, have you ever experienced the real loving presence of the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life? If you're a Christian, I bet you have. I know you have. This is what He does. He ministers to us by that still, small voice that tells us, when we don't feel this way, it tells us, you're loved. You're forgiven. You're secure in Christ. Those, those moments when, when, when maybe by that, that warm embrace, He envelops us. And you feel that. You sense his presence and, and what he does in those moments is, is turning your sorrows into comfort. And it's real comfort. Have you experienced that? Or maybe by emboldening us to, to worship or to serve him in ways that make our hearts beat faster and stronger for him in, in adoration of him. Those can be very powerful, moving, even emotional experiences, right? And Paul reminds us that these experiences are evidence of God's assuring love for the justified saint. God is loving you in those moments when He's, when he's revealing to you, you've been filled with the Spirit. You say, well, what about when we don't feel it? How do we be assured when the power seems distant? Well, again, there's balance here. There's also tremendous assurance given to the justified through the application of objective gospel truth. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love those verses. These are, these are the verses I, when, 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 I, when I can only believe that the Spirit has been deposited in me, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily sort of sensing the fullness of the Spirit. When I, when I can believe that God's anger has been removed from me, that His grace has been applied to me, but I'm not necessarily experiencing that, I come back to verses like this and I'm reminded of, of this wonderful truth that, that in the midst of me not even being able to be aware of God or experience God because I was dead in my sin. That's when He loved me. That's how He shows His love is when we were dead. When we were enemies. When we were not even thoughtful of Him whatsoever. It's at that moment, at the right time that Jesus came in and died for sinners. So I don't need to be, I don't need to experience that. I don't need to be fully aware of that at all times. God just loves me and my justification in Jesus is proof. The Gospel declares that God loves unworthy people. Always. And therefore we have, sixthly, the genuine security. Look at verses 9-10. through 10. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Security is, is like assurance, but Paul's adding kind of a new idea for us to consider as a reality of our justification by faith in Christ. And here's the main idea. He's saying if Jesus' death so powerfully reconciled us to God, how much more power is there in His resurrection? took me a while to figure out what this verse meant. For a long time I thought, you know, if, 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 if we were saved by His death, then how much more are we saved by His life? And I'm looking back to His 33 years. I was trying to figure out, what does that mean? And, and, and eventually I realized, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not talking about that life. He's talking about resurrected life. He's talking about the fact that Jesus is alive right now. And forever. And if He, while we were sinners in His death reconciled us to God, how much more now that we're not His enemies, but now that we're His friends, will He continue that ministry? And how does He continue that ministry? Here's how. We have an advocate in Jesus Christ right now in heaven standing at the right hand of God. And He's continually applying the ministry of His death to us daily in every moment when we sin, He stands as our advocate and says, I paid that price. That one's bought. That one's mine. This one's righteous, God. Look at them and see Me. That's beautiful, daily, saving grace. Can I prove that to you? 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is total security. I mean, look at this. What does justification by faith mean for me? <laughs> A lot. I have peace with God. I have access to His grace. I have the hope of His glory. I have joy in sufferings. I have real assurance. I have genuine security. What's my response to that? It's, it's, I think what he says in verse 7, it's the seventh reality. It's, it's true joy. True joy. More than that. I don't, I don't know how you can say more than that. More than that? How do you have more than that? More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did he really say anything new there? Not really. He's already been talking about the reconciliation that we've received. So what's he saying? I think he's just saying, look, I mean, just sum it all up. More than all that, real joy in God. Like that's what you ought to have, Christian, because of all these things that are true about who you are now in Jesus, that just ought to produce real joy in God. You've been reconciled. He's just repeating himself now. Do you get it? Do you get who you are? This, this kind of makes me think of, of uh, John Piper's you know, very famous saying, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. I think that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. Like, like, look, if you believe and you know all these things to be true, and that ought to just be absolutely satisfying to you, then, then here's how God is glorified. When your joy in Him just increases and increases and increases. Piper talks about this concept of Christian hedonism. 
which is kind of a weird thing to say, but, but what he means is this. Hedonism is the idea that, that I'm out to pursue my own pleasure. And we think of that as sinful. And guided by sinful hearts, it's very sinful. But guided by a redeemed heart, a new heart, a justified heart, if that pleasure that I'm seeking after is the pleasure of knowing more and more of God, then that's a good hedonism. Go get it! That's what Paul's saying. Man, just more than all this, just go rejoice in who you are in Jesus. Rejoice in Him. Because He's made all this possible. That's awesome. So this doctrine is pretty doggone practical, isn't it? And it ought to fill us this week. When you doubt this week, when you get down this week, when you forget this week, you just open up Romans 5 and you remind yourself there are seven realities here that are true right now for me if I'm in Jesus Christ. And rejoice. And we have an opportunity to rejoice corporately before we go by coming around this table and being reminded that this represents the justification that we have. His body broken, His blood shed for us. So let's have the elders come forward and let's come to the table and take it before we go.